0: this is david marler ufo researcher and you're listening to that ufo podcast did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising with 67 of listeners remembering brands and 63 percent making a purchase after hearing them whether you want to diversify your ad spend add a new marketing stream or test out podcast ads zencasters creator network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as google or facebook host red ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion zencaster's creator network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favorite creators like me That's the number one, or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. I am delighted to be joined by an award-winning author, historian of alternative spirituality, and after hearing him speak several times, I can see he is one of the outstanding voices today on the occult, esoterica, and mysticism. Mitch Horowitz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's really good to have you on, and I do have to give a quick shout-out to Priscilla Stone over at Quantum Watch Cafe, who just hosted you a few days ago as we record this. She is part of the Anomalous Podcast Network that I produce. Please go and check out that interview. Give Priscilla a follow. Um, She is fantastic. Her interview is definitely different to my own. Her style is different to my own. And I know she goes into some some details on your new book, Uncertain Places, that we'll touch on as well. So that is definitely worth a listen. And I think you had a good time with Priscilla as well, didn't you, on that one?
1: Oh, very much. She's a true seeker. And for that reason, the conversation flowed into so many different directions. I don't think I've ever had a more satisfying exchange especially about controversial aspects of my own career because there are some things you can only have a rich exchange about with another seeker
0: yeah and, and she has that knowledge and interest and real passion for so so much of that conversation that she can dip into on that channel and it's wonderful so especially if you enjoy hearing Mitch here go and check that one out and also Priscilla's unter- other interviews as well now first off Mitch when people say they are cult or esoteric for those who don't quite fully understand what those terms mean, people like myself who go and Google those when I hear them, just to double check what they mean these days, how do you define occult or, or esoteric?
1: Well, I frequently use the term occult, and it, it's simply a, a term that derives from the Latin occultus, meaning secret or hidden. It was a term that came into usage, including in English In the early decades of the 1500s during the Renaissance, when writers, thinkers, scholars, translators, clerics were attempting to describe the spirituality of the pre Christian world emanating from Egypt, Rome, Greece, Persia, which they were encountering for the first time. They were discovering manuscripts, writings, techniques and threads and fragments of the religious philosophies of antiquity which had vanished above ground during the early medieval period the temple orders the priesthoods and so forth the mystery schools were gone so in terms of this rediscovery it was referenced as secret or hidden or occult to describe a spirituality that was shrouded in the mists of antiquity for uh, figures during the Renaissance. So that's quite simply the meaning. Uh, Just due to cultural conditioning, the word has gotten associated with things sinister and such, but those who who practiced ideas that might be classified as a cult for millennia were part of nature-based, seasonally-based, initiatory religious traditions, didn't view themselves in sinister terms at all and wouldn't have even recognized the appellation and I think the term has historical integrity uh, so I've continued to use it
0: yeah I was going to say in 2022 they're still relatively misunderstood terms aren't they and there, there is that negative aspect of it I think occult and I'll be honest when I when I hear those words maybe less so now I've dove into some of your work and seen your talks you immediately associate occult demonic you know rituals and it summons up certain imagery in your head doesn't it and and what do you say to folks who maybe shy away from those terms
1: well it's fascinating how our language changes over centuries even the word demonic itself the term demon in greek is an entirely neutral term meaning spirit and it was only during well both late antiquity and a backlash against occult experimentation during the renaissance that the term demon began to be used to make reference to malevolent entities you found this late in biblical antiquity you found it immediately in in post-biblical antiquity and and then it returned as a backlash developed against occult experimentation during the Renaissance but our, our language takes on this cultural baggage over many many centuries and it seems so persuasive by force of familiarity that we find it difficult to get away from. I find myself using the term demon and having to stop and add in parentheses, this was a neutral term in its original iteration, which is how I use it when I do. Uh, Language is very persuasive. If, If we as a culture settle around certain reference points and meanings, the historicism gets lost. And the way we use these terms in common conversation take so deep a hold on us that we can't think outside of fairly modern usages or interpretations of these terms. But again, I persist in using them because I don't think you can entirely seed a term only to its critics or only to those who use it as an epithet. And quite frankly, as I tell my friends on the alternative spiritual scene sometimes, you can substitute in words like esoteric for occult all you want, and esoteric is a perfectly noble term. I use it all the time, but if it becomes an article of faith to dispense with old language because it's misunderstood, then it's going to prove a disappointing wager because you're going to get called all sorts of names anyway, so you may as well just embrace those terms that have historical
0: integrity explain yourself as best you can and march on i'll come back to the labeling in a moment and the boxing of those words and how they've changed over years because that's something that definitely resonates in the ufo subject particularly but on that when I get guests coming onto the podcast, their, their background usually is exclusively in the UFO field. They've been in UFO books, research for decades at some times, or they've worked in government or or academia from a UFO point of view. You've got quite a breadth in terms of that. You, you're interested in the occult, mysticism, and the UFO subject becomes a part of that. And that that's covered again, like I say, in your books as well. What are some of your earliest memories of of an interest in the UFO subject, even if that goes back to TV shows or your own experiences?
1: Oh, sure. Uh, uh, when I was a little kid growing up in the borough of Queens here in New York City, where I'm speaking from, it was a very exciting time in the early to mid 70s, uh, the occult, the esoteric um ESP research the UFO thesis all these things hung heavy in the air and it was very exciting to me I vividly remember my older sister bringing home paperbacks from school by Carlos Castaneda books on flying saucers books on Bigfoot and anomalies I was fascinated with folklore and oh I don't know I suppose you could say different popular mystical traditions and I just gobbled up these books from our local public library in the town of belrose and where they were very accommodating to me and i would rush home to watch reruns of the twilight zone on television or dark shadows or watch daytime talk shows that were popular in the u.s at that time like mike douglas or merv griffin where they would interview astrologers or ufo researchers or robed gurus and the whole thing was just deeply fascinating to me all the more so that some of these ideas, like astrology, for example, extended back to deep antiquity. And I was asking myself, how is it that most people walking around today know their sun sign and can tell you something about it, whether or not they place any stock in it? How is it that there's a horoscope column in every daily newspaper and that this has become part of the language of everyday life, whereas it all began, albeit in a different form, in ancient Mesopotamia? How is it possible that that kind of religious retention would reach us millennia later? But it did, and I wanted to uncover the roots of that.
0: Yeah, some folks, especially younger listeners, might be amazed to hear that star signs didn't always tell you the best time to put the lottery numbers on. And uh, they had they had very different meanings back in the day. Um, at your talk, in the, you mentioned the conference, or you live in New York, and the conference mm-hmm. that Jay Christopher King and James Iandoli put on, uh, they were on the podcast recently. They'll be coming back on to discuss their upcoming conference again in New York on December 3rd. Uh, your talk was brilliant and is available on YouTube. It was the inquiry into anomalous experience experiences. Uh, And the one you were at had a few fantastic speakers, including Gary Nolan there as well. Now, you said at the beginning of your talk that we're living through a very special moment in terms of the conversations people have around extra physicality, extra dimensionality, and that there are now a few questions that have gone mainstream that before were very much considered fringe. Uh, And I'd love to get into that a bit more with you. And Many people are coming round to the idea that what people have commonly seen in as, as the past, and you mentioned ESP, uh, ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot and and such, they're potentially less paranormal and more normal than we think, but they might also be linked. And I wonder how have you viewed those conversations merging over the years? You mentioned, sorry for this being long-winded, but you mentioned the 70s there and your sister bringing home paperbacks of UFOs, you know, flying saucers, Bigfoot. Did you ever consider these were all part of the same sort of umbrella? umbrella conversation or were they always very different to you
1: it's only more recently that I've come to consider them as part of the same conversation in the past first of all in the past I probably would have described the UFO thesis as a very indirect relative to study of the occult the metaphysical the paranormal likewise cryptids like Bigfoot and so forth Um, my definition of the occult is at least it's a gambit, a belief in an unseen dimension of existence whose forces can be felt on and through us. And I feel that these conversations at this instant are starting to converge. I, for a long time, uh, resisted entreaties from journalists and others to ponder the question of uh, there, there being an occult revival in our immediate era, because i felt that that was always a news hook, and it was never really an earnest reckoning uh, with the manner in which interest in the occult has really been an evergreen on the Western scene ever since the Renaissance. It goes through peaks and valleys, of course, went through a a big upsurge in the mid to late 19th century, thanks to the influence of people like uh, Eliphas Levi and Madame H. P. Blavatsky, went through another upsurge during the Woodstock generation when All kinds of traditional ideas were being upended, and people were seeking insight in either Eastern ideas or in Western ideas that were considered verboten. And ever since that time, I don't think there's really been much of an upsurge, but that has changed. That has changed very recently, and it's changed specifically because of the mainstreaming of the UFO Thesis. Uh, people always think that, well, you know, it's technology, all this stuff is spreading over the internet, and that's certainly true. But apropos of my big sister bringing home paperbacks from school, there were plenty of pipes through this information, for, through which this information could travel at an earlier time. So while technology may have, in some respects, altered our sensibility, and 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 I would argue it has, I wouldn't attribute that alone to the Upsurge of not only interest, but mainstream interest in this subject matter. That comes, as far as I can see, from another place. And that place is that we now have evidence of engineered phenomena that we call UFOs or UAPs or what have you being aired, talked about, written about in very, very mainstream opinion shaping places. That's very different from when I was a kid. From when I was a kid, of course if you talked about ufo's somebody would say oh you know swamp gas little green men you're imagining things go to the principal's office you know and nowadays of course you'd be you'd be hard pressed to find anyone of any real intellectual depth or seriousness in our culture who just waved off the question as if there isn't a deep and profound question there um i don't think anybody of any intellectual gravity would engage in that today. And that's different from where things were perhaps even five years ago. I also got to thinking, as um, probably this goes back to about 2019, and, and it, it's reflected in the first chapter of my book, Uncertain Places. I got to thinking about the interdimensionality thesis, which Jacques Valet has so elegantly depicted, laid out. And I got to wondering whether there wasn't a conversion uh, of conversations about ufos uh, academic esp research and some of the most important theorizing that's coming out of the field of quantum mechanics and has for the past 80 90 years or so and the notion to put it in the plainest terms is that An infinitude of events may be playing out at once, and that is a a logical conclusion that one almost has to draw from the implications of quantum data. And that data, by the way, no longer just involves little particles, but but encompasses larger objects, and, and there's a degree to which macro objects fit into that as well. And that being the case, it's possible. It's possible that our psyches are capable of traveling among these different intersections of time, which we might call other dimensions. We certainly have some evidence of that emergent from decades of replicable, really bulletproof, statistically driven academic research into ESP, including precognition and or retrocausation, when an event from the so-called future affects something in the so-called present. And so I began to wonder if maybe, maybe our theoretical understanding of the possibility of encountering interdimensional events or intelligences is better developed at this point, although it's still conceptual, is better developed than our theoretical model of what would be required to travel these unfathomable distances that it would require for extraterrestrial visitors or objects to reach us now of course there are conceptual models of that as well like cosmic wormholes but as far as our theories go i think we are covering more ground and we have more developed ideas around the idea of interdimensionality than we do around extraterrestriality and so my gambit is that All of these things that we describe as anomalies, whether it be a UFO, an ET experience, a cryptid experience, um, other anomalous encounters, whether it's poltergeist or ghost activities, the very capacity of our own minds to receive information, dispense information, receive sensory data in ways that go beyond understood biological or technological faculties all of this may be converging to suggest that part of the ufo puzzle may be individuals encountering things from different intersections of time Um, in the book i go through evidence that we have for that in esp studies in In quantum mechanics, I also have another book called Daydream Believer, where I dedicate a very substantial chapter to some of these questions, particularly as they relate to ESP research. So I came to feel that the conversation was perhaps starting to converge, and and that suggests to me that we are going through a kind of third wave occult revival today. Things are different um, in terms of the public discussion conversation. The media uh, that's being used to broadcast this conversation, with exceptions, um, things are different from where we were just a few years ago, and that is thanks to, thanks to the mainstreaming of the UFO thesis on behalf of Leslie Keen, Ralph Blumenthal, and and their media colleagues, among
0: other people. Yeah, Helene Cooper is always the third Helene one who gets Cooper. left. She Thank always you. gets left off. Everyone Thank does you. it. Don't worry.
1: I was I was struggling with a guilty heart because I thought to myself as I was responding, I always include Ralph and Leslie and I fail to include Helene. So.
0: Do you know what? Ralph and Leslie, a- and that's fair, not fair. <laughs> they, they put themselves out there and they have done the appearances, the podcast. Leslie has her Netflix specials. Ralph's been on this podcast several times. Leslie's on at the end of the month. Helene kept herself to herself. She done the article, and that was it. She's never gone on further. So All I'm sure good, I'm sure she doesn't mind. But we've got our credit read it where in there. it's due. Yes, so- Babbel is one of today's sponsors, and they are the best way for you to begin to learn a new language. Immersing yourself in the language of your choice from day one through a whole range of learning styles, including podcasts, games, and online classes. It's available on desktop or through their app. Babble's courses are created by didactics, experts and focus on real life situations. So if you're holidaying in France and spot a UFO, you can get locals' attention quickly and efficiently. The lessons are as short as 15 minutes and fit into any schedule and can be downloaded to work on offline while on the go. With the help of everyday dialogue exercises and the speech recognition software, learners can practice their pronunciation and regular vocabulary repetition ensures that what is learned is memorised over the long term. I can already hear some of you listeners getting in touch to tell me I should really learn English given my dodgy accent. When you buy a six-month subscription to Babbel, you receive six months extra for free by using the code AUDIO1. That's A-U-D-I-O-1, the number one. Pay for six months and learn for a whole year. Get info and redeem the code at babbel.com forward slash audio. Folks, today is the day you finally decide to make a life-changing decision and learn that new language. (laughs) <laughs> I want to bring up though, Mitch, because you mentioned the revivals uh, of, of the occult interest, late 19th century, the 1960s, the Woodstock generation, immigration changes, I remember you mentioning was something in the United States, which had a big cultural impact on those. Yes. Two. That made me think in recent years, what is the difference from the 19th century to the Woodstock to, to now? And there's an integration we have in people's lives that is social media and how we live online. And we're no longer restricted to being citizens of a physical environment. Yeah, we we have these virtual lives, and we live in this digital world where you're almost, you know, you're you're holding your phone or you're you're in front of a desktop, but you you go in there, don't you? And you almost have an, an avatar as such, and we're citizens of this digital world. And what that has done is open you up some sometimes good, sometimes bad to limitless views and opinions on a whole range of topics and ideologies. And now we have this huge melting pot of ideas that before were maybe limited to your your more immediate environment and I just wonder how how do you feel that has changed or impacted the conversation that you now see such a breadth of ideas and does that help ease us into the idea that you know you can your psyche as you say can travel through different dimensions realities because in a way you're traveling to other countries and continents in a split second and interacting with people or bots sometimes that's yes. another another decade you could never have done
1: yes and that's a very good point and that's why I, I I have to be careful not to be too quick to exclude the technology equation from this third wave occult revival the and and there there's so much there. I mean, we could do a whole discussion on that alone. You know Jason Louve was making the point to me that, in a certain sense, technology, digital technology, is magic as compared with what the alchemists and 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 the sorcerers of both late antiquity, the hermetic era, and the Renaissance era were talking about the ability to project the self, the ability to, Uh, engage with other entities as you and I are doing right now across vast areas of time distance space and so forth so there's so much that could be unpacked there but as far as the social impact goes look it's both good and bad it's good in that the searching individual can glean information in ways that could never have been dreamt of a generation ago I dig very very deeply into research about topics that i care about at the moment and i suspect for years ahead i'm very deeply interested in esp research as some of my responses have indicated and the wealth of information that i can glean in a very short space of time is just incredible and i'm grateful for it every day at the same time human nature is constant human nature hasn't changed so the voices that do violence to intelligent exchange have also multiplied and the capacity to share information uh, is wonderful but the blowback to having intelligent exchange uh, every bit matches uh, the splendor of 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 being able to share and to exchange the the level of discussion on social media is overwhelmingly poor. It's very difficult to uh, have any kind of meaningful exchange outside of sharing information. It is, um, it abets laziness. Uh, People expect to have things explained to them rather than leaving the ether of cyberspace and reading or listening to something or what have you. So, and of course you have a polemical skepticism that runs riot on social media that has had a deeply deleterious effect to some of our primary reference sources most especially Wikipedia uh, Wikipedia is terrific if you want to know about the um, coastal weather you know in Finland it it is an absolute shambles an absolute shambles if you want to know anything about uh the esp thesis the ufo thesis uh including the lives and careers of some of the key researchers in these areas it's terrific for the napoleonic wars it's terrible for anything that is a a topic of of current exchange and debate it's it's just been overcome in these particular areas by a polemical skepticism that i don't think wiki as a source is sufficiently staffed to editorially supervise and uh it's a cultural problem
0: i would be remiss to ignore the fact you've mentioned esp a few times and there will be some listeners thinking oh i talk about it talk about it so let's go there (laughs) and there will also be some listeners thinking i've heard that term i'm going to guess uh, is it still extrasensory perception that hasn't changed what is that if you want to just describe that to some of the listeners who might be unsure
1: it's a way of receiving and sending information that goes beyond any of our ordinary observation in terms of biology cognition or technology so we here in the united states for example and this is of course true in in europe and other parts of the world for now about 80 or 90 years we have had a a well-established academically based Uh, culture of parapsychology where tests are performed in the ability of people to glean information without respect to cognition, mass, time, space, location, and we refer to this as as ESP. It's a, a model that seeks to codify and catalog evidence for cognition that goes beyond all ordinary observation. And the statistical evidence that we have for ESP, thought transmission, clairvoyance, precognition, or what is sometimes also called retrocausality, the statistical evidence that we have for this material is as good, as well-replicated, as juried, and as bulletproof as any that we have. And It places our culture into a difficult spot, as it has for several decades, because we do not understand causation. And it's very difficult to have data without causation. We want to know how things happen. And so the quest for causation usually leads to a theory, and sometimes that theory will result in evidence being accepted that has previously been controversial, or evidence being accepted that has previously been misunderstood or only partially understood. That's what happened with Darwin's theory of evolution. We had the physical evidence, and it was all kind of in pieces until Darwin proposed a theory that that gained ascendancy. I'm not speaking to the nature of that theory so much as just to the social circumstance that gave rise to it and gave rise to its acceptance. Um, Sigmund Freud was very good at this, for example. He was able to gain acceptance for a lot of his insights, and he started out in his career, and I would say ended his career with a great deal of sympathy for the ESP thesis, something that is often overlooked in Freud's career. He's often seen as an arch materialist, and he really was not. But what he was, was a master diplomat who was capable of gaining acceptance for his theories because he would, acceptance for his data, we'll say, Mm. gained through the psychoanalytic method because he understood the necessity of theory within our Western model now we who care deeply about the esp thesis or the ufo thesis or both we do not have an overarching theory we've made some good steps in that direction but there's no consensus-based overarching theory as you had within the work of a uh, a freud or uh, uh, an einstein or a louis Pasteur uh or darwin for that matter and modernity demands a theory Mm. so we're in a tough spot and that's okay there's nothing wrong with being in a tough spot it can make you better and and what we have is data that in some cases is accepted in some cases is not accepted and we struggle to apply the implications of that data Uh, we have certain fields here in the west that are widely accepted ones like neuroplasticity which demonstrates through brain scans that the gray matter of your brain the cellular matter of your brain will actually undergo changes based on thought and everyone accepts those findings because they're so bulletproof what they don't accept is the implications because the implications are mind over matter and those implications are a place that we are educated in the west not to go we live under philosophical materialism where Everything is a strict, neat cause and effect based on familiar Newtonian physics, and anything that departs from that is considered going off into the margin somewhere.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We're in a tougher spot with respect to uh, UFO and ESP research, <clears throat> excuse me, because we have data, but we don't have a model yet. And so the response that's healthy and that's positive in my estimation is to say okay we have the data let's keep gathering data and let's work on a model see where we get see what we do whereas the polemical skeptics they will just say no 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 no. they'll throw out the evidence altogether they have this secular religion that runs counter to anything that goes outside the parameters of philosophical materialism which holds that common observation more or less rules the day Um, implications are dancing you off into fairyland or something and that matter creates itself and that all phenomena is a result of um, chemical processes biological processes cognition motor skill and Newtonian physics and anything that goes outside of that is unaccepted, even in the face of evidence. And that's the intellectual poverty of our era. It's not the only problem we have, to be sure, but it is a problem. And that problem of being unable to accept evidence, even when it's gathered according to the most impeccable standards, which is the case with a good deal of academically-based ESP research, and I make reference to that only because it's an area of deep commitment, um, that problem of not accepting evidence due to um, both uh, the prejudices of materialist philosophy, which has held sway in the Western world for about 300 years, it ain't a prejudice that's going to go away easily, and at least to critics who are capable of intelligently discussing it, the problem of lacking a theory, which is a problem, is a legit problem. It doesn't mean you smash galileo's telescope it doesn't mean you burn the fleet it doesn't mean you discontinue discovery it's a totally impoverished response to this material and that's one of the problems that we face today
0: I'm glad you mentioned Galileo because uh, an argument I often bring up that frustrates me greatly and I think speaks to what you're saying about uh, about the skepticism and throwing away you know ideas in spite of the evidence is Professor Brian Cox here in the UK very well res- respected physicist he's on the BBC quite a lot he does spoken word tours he he often speaks down about the UFO subject and the possibility of alien life in spite of the the evidence the testimony out there Professor Brian Cox will also on his shows often cite that Galileo is one of his great heroes. Galileo himself during his time was house under house arrest because his his colleagues and <clears> peers <throat> of the time thought his ideas were so wild that they must be wrong, even though he had evidence, he had proof. Um, and I see Professor Brian Cox doesn't see the, you know, the irony in he being so dismissive of the UFO topic that I hope and see one day being much more of the normal because people like him could get involved and really help push this conversation forward. Is it just that that human condition you say this this won't go away anytime soon that even respected intelligent individuals like a Professor Brian Cox and holding up heroes like Galileo won't see how they're being dismissive of what like, the UFO conversation, how they are. And it could be the greatest scientific discovery of all time you know finding something else out there they don't want to be involved in that discovery
1: it's fascinating you cannot invent these ironies you cannot invent these ironies and if you were to have a relaxed conversation in private and say to him don't you see how heroizing galileo while talking down a radical thesis is in contradiction I suspect, just based on human nature, it's true of me, it's true of all of us, it wouldn't even penetrate, it wouldn't even get through. We as a human community seem to have a brokenness, an inability to permit in contradictions, including in our own psychology, including in our own approach. And this is true across the human situation. Uh, May I be so fortunate as to see it in myself. As easily as I'm able to see it in Professor Cox, um, we can often see it in others and not see it in ourselves. And it is a human problem. And I hope, I hope in my own work, I am not succumbing to that myself because I recognize that it's just part of the human situation that when we get turned on to a certain thesis or we, declare ourselves in agreement with something, which can be a very emotional decision. Mm -hmm. We all want a world in which we feel safe. We all want a world that's somewhat familiar. None of us want to wake up Thursday morning and discover that our paradigm has been shattered. None of us really want that. We crave familiarity. We crave sameness. And we glean information that way as well. So shame on me if I'm succumbing to that in my own work. I have to be really, really careful of that. That is why I want there to be a healthy, skeptical apparatus. Uh, William Blake wrote in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell in 1790, opposition is true friendship. It's really worth living with that maxim of Blake's. We do not advance unless we meet with friction, unless we meet with barriers. I want there to be canny, capable, committed, responsible, dedicated skeptics. I want there to be people who will tell me where I'm wrong, who believe that I am wrong, and who will debate me intelligently, from which I can only benefit, from which I can only benefit. I give a lot of presentations, and I am only human. And from time to time, I am going to make a mistake in those presentations. I have never once, I hope, failed to get better. Um, for that mistake being pointed out, sometimes by people who are not friends of mine. But nonetheless, um, in fact, Emerson wrote that there's no greater plague on us than our friends. They lull us to sleep. We want adversaries. But those adversaries have to be people who know what they're talking about, who are dedicated to serious exchange, and who don't just throw over the chessboard if the game is going against them. It, it has to be about more than that. So. I'm also very concerned about the paucity of real intellectual depth within the skeptics community.
0: You mentioned, and I suppose, well, I hope this is a good example of it. You mentioned Leslie Kaye and Ralph Blumenthal, Helene Cooper, and and I know Leslie and Ralph have worked on several articles for the New York Times on, on various UFO, UAP related issues. Recently, uh, a counter article to that has gone up on the New York Times by Julian Barnes and uh, a bit of a a fire-stoking headline declaring most UFO reports are clutter or airborne trash. Now this spat in the face of of much of the UFO community or fans of the conversation, you know, diehard UFO enthusiasts, and I can see why. I like to think as much as I'm a fan of the subject, I can also take a step back and just view things. I've learned that in my job and and just life in general. Do you think there's as much bias on both sides of the fence that you can just, I think you've said as much there, you get so stuck and ingrained in your argument that you can't see the middle ground. And there are people who are, are gatekeepers of the subject almost who who won't allow a skeptical eye. Now I'm not saying Julian Barnes, I, I feel he was very biased in the article he wrote and, and even in his writing that, oh, 150 or so cases have been solved. Yeah, but what about the other half that haven't? You know, you're just ignore, you're leaving that out. And you talked about cherry picking data with the ESP research, very much the same thing where is that happy medium how do we arrive at a place where you do have healthy skeptical debate but also you know ufo enthusiasts on the other side and you you can have that conversation how do we get there that ufo podcast is powered by zencaster zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts The open beta strives to put the power of studio-quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio-quality sound, chat, and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more.
1: I wonder, honestly, if we can get there because... Humanity is so tribalist and so emotional in its decision making. And we in the West, at least, are trained to think in opposite. Something is true or something is false. And that probably stems from Aristotle. And that's not helpful in times like ours. We live in uncertain places, whether we like it or not. And there are things that are going to be unintelligible. There are things that have to be sustained as a question. And the true false polarity makes it very difficult sometimes to sustain questions and to have meaningful debate. It hobbles us not only in the areas that we're talking about, but it it hobbles us in policy making as well. You know, here in the United States, we have a shambles of a health care, health insurance system that many many people are dissatisfied with but we can't do anything about it because every time we start talking about it emotions hold sway and all we're really talking about is a delivery system there's got to be a better delivery system so let's try to find this better delivery system but that simple exchange is rendered impossible even though the majority of people care about it because of emotions Um, And also because of a a kind of tribalism where as soon as we settle on an emotionally held position, we feel threatened by anybody who doesn't hold that same position. And we think there must be something that they're not telling us. They're using this as a smokescreen for something else. That's one of the reasons why I try to use very blunt language and I try to be very transparent. Um, Apparently, uh, I'm I'm not always uh, successful according to the lights of uh those who see themselves as set into the opposite position from uh, my own but i i do think that we need to get beyond indirectness we need to be very direct it seems to me about what we stand for what we believe in for example i refer to myself as a believing historian and i'm very disclosing of that because i want people to realize that i do emerge from and interact with uh, some of the very movements that I write about. And I think rather than compromising one's critique, that can enrich one's critique because you're at the center of things and you can see failed ideals. You can see hypocrisies. Maybe you can understand the values that emanate from certain movements, how those values fall short. There's an intimacy that can enrich uh, documentation. So, I think transparency uh, of all players is important it's it's very important whether it will go the distance in bridging the gap that you've rightly described I do not know uh, now with regard to this uh New York Times situation where we have uh, Helene Ralph and Leslie perhaps one could put it standing off to one side and a Julian Barnes standing off to other to another you know maybe that's not a fair formulation but for the sake of generalism I'll make it um I was just interviewing uh my old friend Whitley Strieber before we got on together which I mentioned um I'm part of a UFO film festival here in New York City and and we're showing communion and another movie of which Whitley was a part so we were talking largely about film but this very topic came up and Whitley said something that I'll repeat I agree with it entirely he said, look, you know, when the the the, the Cooper Blumenthal Keene article made it to the front page of the New York Times, it was a miracle. It was an extraordinary breakthrough, and it really was. I mean, there were antecedents to that, but that was the bell sounding that issued the UFO thesis into the mainstream, and it's since repeated in other widely read and opinion-shaping media, including The New Yorker, for example. So... Then we're all waiting for the other shoe to drop, and out comes Julian Barnes' article saying, "Well, most of it, according to my interviews, is just junk, and or a Chinese drone or what have you." And there's a couple of things to unpack there. The first is we have to be very careful, as you were alluding, with the word "most," um, because um, if one were to apply the standard of 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 most. Uh, we would have some extraordinary evidence that doesn't get considered. Um, there's a meta-analysis that was recently published of precognition experiments that were done at Cornell University. Well, most of the replications didn't work, but those replications that did work surpassed the benchmark for statistical significance according to the methodology by which we conduct meta-analyses. So most is a very tricky word. As a friend of mine, Robert Schock, puts it, he's a geologist at uh, Boston University, something only has to be a little bit true in order to change everything. So you could say I've investigated 100 episodes of so-called poltergeist activity, and most were mistakes. And it's like, mm, let's talk about that other 5%. Let's You know, let's start digging there. I mean, that's where the explorer goes. That's where there's something around the corner and we don't know what it is and we have to go there. So most is a tricky thing. Now, Whitley pointed out to me that when these unnamed military sources tell Barnes, for example, that um, some of these sightings that might exist on uh, video or radar or other methods of measurement Uh, are nothing but uh proposed Chinese drones well that doesn't encompass the historical and technical record because we have the, the U.S. military for example has documented flight patterns going back to 1947 that share significant commonalities with the flight patterns of that more reasonably uh, recently released uh, data so if there's a congruency of flight patterns between 1947 data and 21st century data that obviously calls into question the chinese drone uh, thesis uh, because we're seeing flight patterns back at a time when there were no such thing as drones and there these are the issues that are going to fuel this debate and this is why we get into this kind of intellectual trench warfare because current authorities say something it gets reported in a prominent place and then those who are deeply dedicated say well that's ahistorical. historical that's simply ahistorical. historical that doesn't cover the basis of commonality between these objects and objects from generations ago that predate the technology that you're using as an off-ramp from taking Mm -hmm. seriously the UFO thesis. Now, this debate, uh, for such reasons, is going to drag on. Um, I presume that most of us, myself included, and I have to be really careful about this, we propose a thesis and we often find uh, evidence for that thesis. And Social scientists love to call it confirmation bias. They throw around that term. It's just a term for prejudice. We all suffer from it, including the people who use that term themselves to dispel legitimate evidence, which I suppose is um indicative of its validity, but people never apply it back to themselves. so i I, I read that article and the Barnes article. And I thought that morning that I read it about sharing it on social media because I thought, well, look, you know, it's just a something that's on the public agenda. Go ahead and share it. I'm not endorsing it one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But I opted against sharing it because I thought, you know, there's a background conversation here that needs to occur. And that background conversation is part of what you and I are doing. It's part of the exchange I just had with Whitley, which, which will which will be published soon. There are, of course, much more intensive and deeper exchanges going on. And one thing I will add is this. Um, at the Anomalous Experiences Conference here in New York a couple of weeks ago, Gary Nolan made a very important point that I think is worth amplifying. He was asked by a member of the audience about the efforts of people in government, people in the military to stymie disclosure and Gary said and I think this is is very important and I think this is the kind of thing that helps leaven the discussion he said look you know there are people in government in military in intelligence services who do want to stymie disclosure absolutely there are also whistleblowers who release documents who release facts and figures why there are whistleblowers for as many reasons as there are people we have them in corporations we have them in media we have them in government we have them in finance there are a lot of injustices that wouldn't be brought to light if it were not for whistleblowers so you have both tendencies those who seek to suppress information those who seek to uh disclose or render public information and both things are are going on at once and um you know with respect to the barnes article i just don't know enough to um offer further supposition but i thought ralph's statement um uh gary big part gary's statement was valuable
0: yeah and i think you're right around that word most was if i approached mr barnes and threw 100 lottery tickets at him and said most of those aren't powerball or jackpot winning tickets i'm sure he would do his <laughs> research and dig through every one of those tickets to find the ones that were Right. Uh, And same with the ESP conversation, remote viewing, Bigfoot, UFOs. We're only looking for that one concrete bang There it is, And that may not even exist. It may be the weight of evidence that has to come up. Um, But, yeah, that's that's what troubled me most about it. It was kind of disappointing. You 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 said something that I I loved uh, in your talk that was testimony over time becomes a record. And many will argue that testimony, especially in the UFO conversation, as I'm sure it is for much of the esoteric, as you say, or the occult, is, is dismissed because it's not a video or a photograph, and even those get argued over. Do you think, at this point, testimony is enough for any of those conversations? We hear a lot of stories and testimony from pilots, from citizens, from from airline pilots, from you know medical people, from people in government about the UFOs or, or experiences they've had. What weight do you put on testimony in the immediacy as being valuable evidence?
1: Well, I'm very influenced by the philosopher William James. He was my intellectual hero. And James, back in his era, and we're still having the same arguments today, He deeply valued testimony. He felt testimony uh, is empiricism, Uh, particularly when we're talking about the well-being of the individual. What else other than testimony do we have to go on? Um, In some respects, entire swaths of our body of medicine uh, pertaining to mental and emotional health, but also pertaining to individual pain, is based in testimony um the placebo response is based in testimony uh so many fields that are fields today um including exploration itself began as as testimony testimony over time becomes record and we're able to use it to navigate and to determine some reasonable iteration of reality I think I joked in the talk, what is the difference between testimony and anecdote? The belief of the observer. You know, uh, people love to use the term anecdote as a dismissal. And that was true in the Victorian age as well. And James, uh, who was the father of pragmatism and positivism or the search for causality, he had a tremendous uh brief against the dismissal of so-called uh, anecdote because it it it's our only empiricism when we're talking about perceptions of life including our own medical well-being in in, in many respects not all but many and if we dismiss testimony um, we not only neglect record, but it just becomes a device at a certain point. So if we had no physical evidence whatsoever uh, for the ESP uh, thesis, and, and we do, but if we had none, uh, that record of testimony would still be valuable. It's, it's, it's a record, and it's coming from people who are trained to observe aerial phenomena. Uh, such people will also make mistakes. But over the course of decades and decades and decades, where there is a confluence of recorded detail, where there is a convergence of experience, data, eyewitness account, to neglect that record would be almost to neglect a mountain that's right in front of us but that we're perhaps not able to reach out and immediately touch so it's extremely important it's not all we have but it's it's extremely important in fact um my friend jeff kripal at rice university who i love and who has been a mentor to me has criticized me and quite rightly for being excessively attached to the laboratory model when it comes to esp and clairvoyance and telepathy and such for whatever reasons I gravitate towards the laboratory model. That may be because I deeply admire um, a man named J.B. Rine, who was the founder of parapsychology as an academic science here in the United States. Uh, J.B. is an intellectual hero to me. Uh, J.B. was very attached to the laboratory model. It may be that my affections for him are such that I have gotten into that groove. And Jeff argues that if you want the ESP effect to go away, the best place to go is in the linoleum tiled white coat lab uh, with electrodes and so on and so forth and tedium setting in and repetition. And he said, you know, it's like going to the North Pole to look for zebras. Now, of course, we do have evidence that comes from the laboratory model, but he feels that better evidence comes from testimony, more steady, more reliable, more remarkable evidence comes from testimony. So I write about this in Daydream Believer. I may be, well, Jeff believes that we have reached the limits of what we can discover about ESP in a lab setting. I'm not sure that's the case, but I recognize his criticisms that I and others are so attached to that model that maybe that's one of the reasons why the ball never seems to move down the field.
0: Yeah, so at least you're admitting to your own confirmation bias, as you said before. On we, that try. we try,
1: we <laughs> try. Yeah,
0: I, I want to get to some listener questions before we finish up, but just before we do, and obviously we've mentioned the Julian Barnes New York Times article. You've spoken about the, the article that occurred in the New York Times in December 2017 that Leslie, Ralph and Helene wrote. That opened a floodgate to the mainstream media. And I think it knocked open a door that never quite closed, which is great, and it's allowed the UFO UFO conversation to manifest in a more serious way. Mm-hmm. And it's made its way through science and academia, people like Avi Loeb at Harvard being involved uh, in getting serious funding, NASA now being involved, the UAP task force publishing reports, albeit as we record this, it's still delayed from the 31st of October you've mentioned that these moments don't occur in isolation and that they tend to have follow-on events as well. And I wonder, what do you think are, based on your other research in other areas, where do you see the conversation with UFOs going in the mainstream this time? Is there any precedent for what you think may happen or could happen in the coming months and years? Wow,
1: that's a good question. Um, First of all, a a lot of our efforts to gain knowledge are tied to funding. Uh, People have to be able to fund these things. Uh, We had the catastrophic loss of the Arecibo telescope system in Puerto Rico uh, a couple of years ago where it collapsed. I was fortunate enough to visit it just about a year before the collapse. Um, There's money to rebuild it. There's not money to maintain it. It's a terrible situation, unfortunately to loss and the 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 funding situation for esp research has been really tough over the past 30 40 years or so partly as a marker of the success of the professional skeptics movement they've they've helped uh, kind of paint esp research with a scarlet letter so that people are afraid to perform it they're afraid to fund it they're afraid to write about it i'm not an academic so i, I don't face those same problems precisely um Funding needs to be there, whether it comes from institutions, whether it comes from individuals. Hopefully, uh, the mainstreaming of some of these questions will loosen up the funding atmosphere. It's asking so much of a researcher to write grant proposals and to do his or her research, whereas they're both entire careers in and of themselves. How it will play out i couldn't venture you know honestly i i couldn't venture i'd be engaged in pure speculation whitley for his part and and i'm referencing the conversation he and i just had before you and i got together he believes we're going to go backwards he believes that the counter voices are going to come in and 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 we're going to see more articles like the barnes one and and we're just going to take a step backwards and that's certainly true i I, I don't have very much faith in human nature um but the cultural rollback might not be as extreme as all that because it seems to me that public belief in something is not a valid measure of truth the the public on mass has believed horrible things over the course of millennia and will continue to nonetheless nonetheless the ability of the public to sustain books funding podcasts like this one research it does make a difference now six months ago I was not really involved in the UFO question but I was invited to the anomalous experiences conference I'm grateful for that invitation I had been thinking heavily about UFOs ever since the 2017 coverage that you referenced started thinking about it again because in the summer of 2019 the guggenheim museum here in new york city held a standing room only panel discussion on the ufo question and it was it was a moment it was really a moment and uh it was a panel discussion of very very high quality and at that time i started thinking about these things more fully in connection with my own work and so i've become kind of an in-law uh to the ufo community you know i'm the guy who visits for christmas or thanksgiving depending on where you live and um and so there's a change you know there's a change in my own life um uh, six months ago you and i might not have even known one another uh, but but now we know one another and we can compare notes and we can talk about this so i have to believe that culturally culturally this opening is gonna is gonna sustain itself
0: and it's gonna grow I know sometimes during Thanksgiving, as you say, or Christmas or other holidays, the in-laws can be a good or a bad thing, can't they? If, if Julian, yes, they Julian If Julian Barnes is the uncle you don't want to turn up, I think you're the uncle that you do want to turn up next. Uh, I hope so. I'll
1: be judged the in-law that people look forward to seeing. You know, yes. Yeah,
0: yeah. You you bring the cool presents and give out the beers. That's <laughs> right. it. Um, exactly.
1: I bring liquor and <laughs> so,
0: yeah. Listen, let's get to some listener questions to finish up. And these jump all over, which is great. Um, first up from Stacey. Stacey says, there seems to be a lot of similar similarities between modern encounters with aliens and folkloric encounters with ghosts, bedroom visitations, chills, vibrations, the hitchhiker effect. What is your opinion regarding the similarities and differences between ghosts and aliens? Do you think they could be one and the same phenomenon?
1: Yes I do. I absolutely do. You know, we need to put labels on things in order to communicate with one another. So somebody might say ghost, visitor, poltergeist, alien, cryptid, unknown entity, spirit, angel, demon, you name it. We are trying to describe the unknown. We're on a key we're we're on our knees peeking through a keyhole and 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 putting a name on what we see and there's nothing wrong with that. We need to describe this phenomenon in such a way that it bets our ability to have an exchange. Uh, But yes, I would say it's absolutely possible. And back in my publishing days, before I uh, wrote and delivered lectures and presentations full time, as I have for some years now, um, I was a publisher for many, many years. And I published a book by uh, Jacques Vallée, which was called Wonders in the Sky, which was a comparison of ancient and contemporary UFO accounts uh to put that term on it but you could and to some degree within the folds of that book will be found you could create a comparative record between so-called ghost encounters and visitor encounters and 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 find deep points of correlation so I think that that discussion is very important
0: uh, following on from that a really good question from Newman and Newman gives a lot of context with his as well and they always make sense so I'll, I'll read that out to why do you think higher beings seem to follow overly strange protocols when they communicate with us and for example uh, Presenting themselves with strange avatars such as hooded beings, Jim Semivan and Whitley Strieber have both said as such, or as a woman of Marian appearance, like the lady in the Bledsoe case, or requiring people to perform special kinds of rituals like seances, meditation or CE5. Are these protocols rather to be understood as having an intent to change the behaviour of the contactee rather than being a mere technical means to initiate contact?
1: That's a wonderful question, and there's so much to unpack there. Um, What I would say is that, first of all, I think another of the possibilities that we are facing at this cultural moment is that we may require less and less of the ritual, so to speak, in order to document these experiences. The very belief in the possibility of something seems to open up an onrush of similar and related experiences now of course if you're looking at it from a strictly materialist social science perspective you would say oh well see it's just the power of suggestion or what have you um although in other contexts when i write about the power of suggestion as i often do my critics say there's no such thing but it always comes into play when it's a useful excuse to explain away metaphysical or paranormal phenomena so it must be granted that that that's the counter But regardless, it's fascinating the manner in which ideas and experiences go viral, so to speak. Uh, Kenneth Arnold cites something in Washington State in 1947, and suddenly the same thing is going on in uh, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., New York City, and so forth and so on. Um, And maybe because it's just empirically occurring at that moment, which is something that many journalists just prima facie want to take off the table. But the fact is, That's empiricism. Uh, You can arrive at your sociological theories as to why ideas go viral, but the fact is uh, they do, and they could be due to events, plain and simple. It seems to me that the belief in the possibility of something abets the actual occurrence. This has been observed in ESP phenomena. This has been observed across the field of placebo studies if it were not for hopeful expectancy, which is to say belief, there would be no placebo response at all. And so the very fact that we as a human community are opening up to these ideas might mean that ritual becomes less and less necessary. Ritual could be attached to just the cultural reference points that an individual has you know something suits people in a certain time place culture and it's necessary in order to make sense of something it's necessary in order to see or experience something it has to reach us enfolded within the cultural reference points that we know it's possible that right now we are requiring of fewer and fewer such cultural reference points
0: question from Tree of Life asks, is a willingness or urge to believe in the unseen religion, spirituality, other life forms baked into human consciousness? I would say
1: yes to that question, because we find across the entire human story, going back to deepest antiquity, across every culture from Polynesia to Siberia, A record of similar experiences, for example, identifying and personifying certain energies in nature, calling these things gods or deities or messengers or what have you, seeking petitionary relationships, uh, seeking to enter into some kind of communion with these personified energies. That's just one of many, many such examples that dot the human story across time, culture, geography, language, custom. And when you start to see these common practices that cut across the whole human story, I do think that that's a scent trail of some kind of universal truth. Uh, It's remarkable to me when you find parallel insights among cultures, both contemporary and ancient, that had no other commonality whatsoever, and yet they have certain parallel insights for example identifying a snake or a serpent as a symbol of wisdom of awakening of higher knowledge you find that among the maya you find that among the hebrews you find that uh in the south pacific uh you find that in different parts of uh, asia east asia it's extraordinary um one can't bypass these things it goes back to testimony in effect testimony becoming a record
0: i'll give a little shout out to dan who i think you met at the conference in new york in in november um dan comes on the podcast and provides analysis and critique on on various parts of the ufo subject he got a tattoo today which is a serpent and he's going to get it filled in as he goes around his travels which are coming oh
1: sweet i've got a serpent somewhere here oh here here, where is he where is you know i forget I get tattooed. Oh, yeah, here we go. I got the Oroboros over here. Uh,
0: If you're at the conference, (laughs) if you're going to the conference on the 3rd of December, Dan's traveling back over for that one, too, in New York. So uh, if anyone listening is going to it, I know a few listeners bought tickets in the last few days. um, I can't wait. I'll be there. I won't be
1: speaking. I spoke at the previous one. I'll be there with my partner, Jacqueline Castell, at this conference. Leslie will be there. Whitley will be there. Jeff Kreipel will be there. Many others. It's just going to be yeah, the Woodstock. Christ- Christ- if you Christopher
0: post. Mellon is going to be yeah. there. Which, yeah, is, uh, This quite, is not to be missed. Good. Absolutely yeah. not. Um, last two questions. First up from Barry. Barry asks if you believe the entity known as LAM has manifested more than once other than for Alistair Crowley's Conjuring. This is one I had to go and look up myself.
1: I love that question. And I saw it on social media. And thank you, Barry. Uh, Crowley, the great uh, British uh, artist, magician, occultist, uh, recorded being in contact with a phenomenal being called Lamb, L-A-M. And I guess this was in the 19, and, and forgive me if anybody, if I'm getting the date wrong, but I think it was in the 1930s. He sketched a very vivid, haunting portrait of Lamb, this otherworldly phenomenal entity with whom he was in contact for a time and you'd just be astonished to look at this drawing and say my god that's the cover of whitley streber's communion it is the image itself of the greys uh the visitors as described in whitley's work and other work uh a generation plus uh, before such an image was popularized and if that doesn't stop a person cold in his or her tracks, nothing will. It's very interesting.
0: I do have to add that um I was speaking to Dan about this before, and he mentioned that there is some who would say that Crowley or Crawley was actually manifesting himself and it was the version of he himself he saw in the mirror while he was under various you know, gateway drug psychedelics for for, for the the technique he was trying to use. So there's always that possibility. And it's always fair to when I'm talking about both sides of the fence, yeah. if, if that's something you've got a real interest in, I've got to mention that. So, Oh, it's a
1: very fair possibility, Um, though still so extraordinary that he would construct an image emerging from his own subconscious that matched the image that was encountered by a man a generation later, plus, as well as others. So You know, one time the poet James Merrill, who used a Ouija board, was asked, well, look, you know, what if all this stuff that you're encountering through the Ouija board is just from your own subconscious? And he said, look, it could be. But if that's the case, how extraordinary do the mediums become?
0: And I'm going to finish off uh, with a question from Jeff, and I'm going to live paraphrase and edit this as I see it, because Jeff gave me a lot of context. And funny, you mentioned Wikipedia earlier, and this (laughs) talks about... uh, the, the group Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia, who are an organized group who distort the world's understanding, as Jeff says, including uh, UFOs and alternative medicine, crop circles, dowsing, mediums, remote viewing, uh, and such. Um, does Mitch see any hope that this pernicious influence can be turned around, given that Wikipedia is the world's go-to place to make a first inquiry about some new topic? And is there anything individuals can do about this distorted coverage in Wikipedia? of any topic that's not endorsed by mainstream science?
1: That's a a wonderful question. That's well-framed. That's well-put. I think that Wikipedia is, as I alluded earlier, um, understaffed, uh, lacking in appropriate editorial supervision. And that group is uh so activist oriented uh so large so energetic uh so well organized and i would say so corrupt in a single-minded polemical dedication to dispelling diffuse topics uh of which its members have only the most cursory understanding that no change will occur uh, within the ordinary functioning of crowdsourcing that prevails on Wikipedia. The only change that will occur will have to emerge from within Wikipedia itself if there is an editor who makes the determination that uh, one group waging a kind of activist campaign ought not be able to write reference history. I'll give you a funny example. I gave a talk in January of 2022 on ESP at a conference in Miami. And in that talk, I mentioned that as of this presentation, uh, a series of experiments within UF uh, within ESP research called the Gonsfeld experiments, a very highly respected Series of experiments that went on in the 70s and 80s, uh, testing for mental telepathy, are described on Wikipedia as pseudoscience without sourcing. And I said, if 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 after all the evidence I've provided that can be described as pseudoscience, then that term itself has lost all meaning. Well lo and behold, if you go upon if you go on Wikipedia right now, go to the Gonsfeld experiments article. Again, this is crowdsourcing. So I have to say as of this presentation, it may change by the time you know, we're done with this podcast. But as of this presentation, uh, you'll find some four or five odd uh, reference notes suddenly magically appended to the reference that I called out the notes all go to sources uh magazines books articles published by um a arch skeptical a professionally skeptical press called prometheus books in the town of buffalo new york which has been around for a long time and their basic mission is to publish works of polemical skepticism so it would be as if you were writing an article and all your reference notes went back to one widely known partisan source or the output of that source, sometimes in the form of an article, a pamphlet, a magazine, an online piece, a book, what have you. But they all go back to these sources. And I would venture that the at least the plurality of sources uh, that seek to render skeptical arguments in opposition to many of these widely diffused topics are referenced to Prometheus or the output from Prometheus. So, for example, if an ethical editor at Wikipedia were to stroke his or her chin and say, well, yeah, that is the case. I think we're going to have to start to you know, look at some of these articles, identify you know, some of the kind of repeat players who are revising these things, identify the sources. It would be a very time consuming exercise and not an easy exercise. But that kind of editorial supervision is the only thing I can see in the short term that is going to help fix this problem which is why, by the way, it behooves those of us in the seeking community to speak very clearly, maturely, and intelligently about this problem, because we're not going to win any friends uh, among the guerrilla skeptics. They have their mission, and they are going to continue at it in a very one-track fashion. But whether there are supervisors, editors, intellects at Wikipedia, and it's very opaque, uh, but whether there are, um, they might hear this and 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 elect to um, to bring greater scrutiny and supervision to some of these articles. As it currently stands, I don't contribute to Wikipedia at all. It's a waste of time because the crowdsourcing model is just too heavily uh, bent against us. There's just only so many hours in a day, and um, some of these people seem to have uh, limitless amounts of time to spend on this.
0: Well, Mitch, whether it's your hypnotic background or your eloquency in speaking, it's been fascinating listening to you. Thank you. Um, your latest book, Uncertain Places, is available to pre-order now. You mentioned it is released on November 8th in print, mm-hmm. digital, and audiobook form, which is becoming increasingly popular. I would encourage folks to go, please, and check that one out. Where would be the best place for them to pick that up?
1: Oh, they could pick it up anywhere they buy books, whether it's Amazon or anyplace else. Uh, To stay up to date with me, I'm on Twitter at Mitch Horowitz. I'm on Instagram at Mitch Horowitz 23. I have a website, MitchHorowitz.com, which I quite love, but I'm I'm very tardy in updating the things. So if you want to stay up to date about appearances and things of that nature, social media right now is the best way to go.
0: And all of those links will be in the description for this podcast as well. So Mitch, thank you very much for joining me. And I hope to have you back on in the future. of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see.
1: and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little I meditated game of full on meta. I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there it was. Mike, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. And I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was on my head and everything was weird and everything was red. I helped out with my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. And they thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems and I think I just seek therapy and I don't know what it is because it doesn't really scare me.